the faith that we need to embrace your word is true and good and worthy of our consideration. Father, you've led us so well to this point. I thank you for the gifts that you've given to Donna and Carmen and Tyler and Austin and how they have used their gifts to draw our hearts towards you and your throne. I pray now, Father, that you would do that with this message, with the sermon that's going to be preached from your word. We thank you so much for the Apostle Peter, his faithfulness to write what you've inspired him to say to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated for a moment. Uh, We have been together in Peter for weeks now, and Peter has been focusing on our key relationships in this world. And he's taken us down through almost a chapter and a half, some tough roads at times. He has called us to live out our lives in a way that would honor God. And he's looked at relationships that we have in different venues in life. First, we looked at how we are to live as citizens in relation to a government that God has given authority to. And and we read here that we're to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He says we're to fear God, but we are to honor the emperor. It's a tough message, as I've heard from some. Next, he takes us to a a tough point, and that's in the workplace. And we are to honor our employers. We are to submit to them. And, And look what he says. He says in verse 18, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. It's a hard message. Not made like that. And then he comes to the marriage. And he says, wives, submit to your own husbands. And he goes so far to even say, even if they don't obey the commands of God. Now, he drew a line. We don't, we don't submit when there's a call to sin. But there's a submission, a reverence, an honor that's to be given from a wife to a husband, even if he's not a believer. And then husbands, oh, husbands, last week we're challenged to live with our wives in an understanding way. And the the grand purpose of it is so that our prayers to God may not be hindered. So how we relate to the, the woman that God gave us affects our relationship with our God. That's where we've been in the last several weeks as we've unpacked these different teachings from Peter. And here we are this morning with the final one in this section of Peter's letter. And we're going to go off in a little different direction after this. But in this final teaching, Peter tells us how we are to relate to one another within the church. This is very inward now in focus, how we as members, pastors and members and deacons and Sunday school teachers and Sunday school class members, how are we to relate to one another? So he's not leaving any relationship out of the mix. He's hit all the big ones, citizen to government, employee to employer, husband to wife, wife to husband, and now church member to church member, pastor to pastor, member to pastor. So I want you to be with me now in 1 Peter chapter 3. Turn there and we're going to look at verses 8 through 12. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand. I want us to stand united and I want us to read what God inspired Peter to write to us. I want us to stand in solidarity. 
I want us to stand saying, this is what we believe. This is what we are about. This is what we shall live together. So read with me, 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender-heartedness, and have a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You may be seated. What we have here, Peter's given us really three things that we need to be mindful of this morning. The first one that we're going to look at is that we are to see what the church must look like. We see who we must be towards one another. And that's basically done in verse 8. In verse 9, the second point he shows us is what we must not look like. What cannot be seen amongst us if we are to fulfill what God's called us to do together. And then lastly, we have a grave warning in verses 10 through 12 from Peter, from God. We have a grave warning about how we are to handle this calling that we've been given. So let's look first. Let's look first at what the church must look like. And I really want you to be applicational this morning. I want you to hear these words and I want you to do some self-evaluation of, yes, yourself. But then I want you to evaluate our church, our congregation. And I want you to say, I want you to ask, is this me and is this us? And if not, what must we do? Because every time we encounter the Scriptures, we've got to be saying, what? So what? And now what? That's how we approach the Bible. What does it say? What's the big deal? And now what do I do with this? And this has got to happen this morning with this passage. So here we go. We're in verse 8. And Peter writes, finally, all of you. Now all of you, real quick. He wrote this letter, verse 1 of chapter 1, to the exiles. He's writing to the church. He's writing to Christians who don't have citizenship on earth merely. They have a citizenship that's in heaven and they're exiles on earth. And so he's saying to all of you exiles, all of you Christians who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this is what you must be about. And he says this, he says five things, five things. These are not behaviors, by the way. These are character traits. These aren't five things we must do. These are five things we must be. Do you know the difference? We must be these five things. And here they are. Unity of mind. Sympathy. Brotherly love. A tender heart. And a humble mind. As I looked at this passage all week, ultimately, the image that I got was an arch. And I want to preach these five things with the analogy of an arch. Okay? And in an arch, you've got... A base on each side. You've got maybe a half arch. And then you've got a keystone right in the center. And I want to unpack these five things with this arch 
imagery in your minds. So go with me. Let's look first at the two bases. The first base is what Peter calls unity of mind. So over here we've got a big base stone. And it is unity of mind. Let me tell you what this means. This does not mean that we are a people with common interests. We, we, we don't have the same interests in sports. or like, We might have those things, but that's not what Peter's calling us to be united about. In fact, it's beautiful when a church has got great diversity, right? But there's something that we can't be diverse on. We've got to be united on in our minds. And that is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we stand together to read a passage of Scripture because we're united that this is the Word of God from the living God that teaches us about Jesus Christ, the one who saves us from our sins and reconciles us to our Maker. And so we are united as a congregation. We must be united as a congregation in mind, and that is that Jesus Christ stepped down out of heaven onto this earth, took on human flesh, walked on this world, never committing a sin. He died an innocent man on a cross in our place. He was buried and He rose on the third day. And He lived some 40 more days on earth interacting with the apostles and many other people witnessed it. He ascended to the right hand of God where He is right now. And He is coming again. We're united on that. And all these other things will be added unto us. Yes, we're going to have common interests or we're going to have differences. But man, we're united on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're unshakable. So one of these foundations to this archway is unity of mind. The other one is humility of mind. So we believe all that together. And now we're going to be humble-minded towards one another. Not prideful, not promoting self, but promoting others. And we're going to do things like what we read in Colossians 3. Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. This is humility of mind in action. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That is humility of mind that we are to have towards one another. And we're to do that while we also have unity of mind. And that unity of mind is on the gospel. I didn't read this. Let me give you a verse on that. Philippians 1.27 only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come to see you or I am absent, I may hear that you are, listen to this, you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind. Striving side by side. For the faith of the gospel. These are the two bases to this archway, unity of mind and humility of mind. Let's work our way up. The next two go hand in hand. We have sympathy 
and we have tender-heartedness. Sympathy, real quick, a definition for this. We are to be genuinely and sincerely caring for one another. In times of joy and in times of grief. In times of trial and temptation. And in times of worship and repentance. In all conditions that we find ourselves in. In all situations, we are to be sympathetic with one another. Sympathetic. We do what Paul writes in Romans twelve fifteen. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice. And we are to weep with those who weep. That's a church. That's a church. Thank you, brother. See, look at this right here. Right? He sympathized with me. Didn't even plan that. So... Can we care genuinely and deeply for one another? We're not going to do that if we're not united in mind. And if we're not humble in mind, we're not going to get to this next leg. Okay? So we're to be sympathetic with one another. And we're to be tender-hearted. That's the fourth one. Tender-hearted is having compassion towards those who are hurting. As if we are experiencing it with them. That's what tender-hearted means. It's, it's not tender-minded thinking, yeah, I'm going to be tender. No, it's internal. It's taking this issue into our own hearts as if we are experiencing it with them. This sounds just like Hebrews 10, 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Tenderheartedness means I'm a partner with you in your suffering. I want to sign up and walk through that with you. That is what a church does. And then he goes on and he says, For you had compassion on those in prison. You're not in prison, but they're those that are in prison. And you've had compassion for them. You have been tenderhearted towards them. You have had sympathy with them. And then here we come to the keystone. Got a foundation of unity in mind on the gospel, humility in mind towards one another. We're tender-hearted and we're sympathetic. But there's got to be this thing right in the middle that holds this archway together, and we call that in architectural terms uh, a uh, keystone. It's the keystone that holds the arch together from falling in on itself. And the keystone that I see in this passage from Peter is brotherly love. Can't be united in mind without loving the brothers. Can't be humble. Can't be sympathetic, can't be tender-hearted without this key central stone. It says, I love my brothers and my sisters. That happened in Sunday school this morning. Brotherly love for one another is what must define us. It is the stone that holds the arch from falling in. Now, how do we show brotherly love? 
Um, there's probably a multitude of ways, but I think there's three aspects to, to this call to have brotherly love for one another. The first is this. We come together often. You cannot have brotherly love for one another and not be together. There's this desire, there's this lack of feeling complete and whole when you're away from the brothers and sisters. It's important, it's joyful, it's a privilege to gather together with the brothers. And your presence says, I love you. Right? Presence amongst us says, you're important, I can't live without you. I need you on this earth. I love you. So you've got to be with us. There's times you can't. Let's don't turn this into legalism. But there's times that you make choices. And your choices are saying where your love is. And the love's first got to be towards God and second towards brother, right? And so you do great things. You go to great efforts to remove things that would keep you from gathering with the brothers because you love them. And your presence says, you're important and I love you. And so Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, do not neglect to gather together, comma, as is the habit of some. Don't do that. But encourage one another and stir one another to love and good works. And all the more as you see the day of Christ's return drawing near. Do not neglect to gather together. Because your gathering together says, I love God and I love you. I need to be with both. And both are here at Rocky Point when we meet on the occasions that we meet. So first of all, brotherly love is presence consistently. It should be rare that you're not with us. It should be rare. And it should feel wrong in an in a aching way, not a sinful way, because sometimes we are called away. Okay, There are vacations for pastors and fishing trips. Okay, we need this, but it's a rare exception. The rule is, I can't wait to get together with my people. Right? So presence is number one. Number two, we love one another. Ready? Even when we disagree. And when you assemble us together, I promise you we're going to disagree on something. It's coming. We're fallen. We have different interests. We struggle with this humility of mind thing. And there's going to be a moment where there's going to be some conflict and some disagreement. And brotherly love says we're going to deal with it in a loving, healthy, God-honoring way. And so we get verses like Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he agrees with you, you've gained your brother. And you're arm in arm again. And you're good. And brotherly love has happened. And, and if it doesn't work out that way, you, you get two or three witnesses and you go to him and you say, Brother, we love you. Come back here. 
And if he agrees with you, y'all have gained your brother and the keystone is still in place. And the arch doesn't cave in. And then, I think a third thing is, brotherly love, there's presence. There's love even when we disagree. And then brotherly love is evidenced in the fact that we stay together. Brothers can beat on each other, right? We know this from brother relationships, okay? Brothers and sisters can. Husbands and wives have moments where they say things to one another that, oh no, but we we stay together because we're family. This is brotherly love. This isn't cousin love. Cousins come together only at the holidays. These are brothers that live together, that were given to one another by God. And they stay together. They confront one another when they disagree. And they agree with their brother. And they've gained each other. And they stay together. And they endure. Now there is a scenario where a brother has sinned. And he's confronted and he won't bend. That, that's different. We, we don't unite with people that will not repent of sin. Okay? But that's not the point of the text this morning. We disagree. We confront. We come back to an agreement. And we stay together and we continue to meet often until we've got to confront again and we stay together and we meet often and hopefully over time these disagreements start evaporating and it's unity and harmony at all times and all the while we're preparing one another for the coming of Christ so there's the keystone this brotherly love it's critical and it's going to be there if these others are there. Because brotherly love is not going to hang in the air by itself. Gravity's going to drop it to the floor. But there's unity of mind, humility of mind, tenderheartedness, and sympathy. And now there's a place for brotherly love, and it all is interconnected. And we've got a strong arch that projects to the world, right? Pillar and buttress of the truth, and the church of the living God. We're to be united in these character traits, church. Can you get here? Can you strive and work to get here? This is our calling. While we're together until Christ comes or we no longer draw breath. So these are traits that are to be found amongst us readily. We've got to be able to go, wow, look at that sympathy over there. Wow, we're united on that truth of the gospel. Wow, brotherly love is happening. We've got to be able to see this in our midst. And the world outside that's lost has got to see this when they look in on us. We need to see a strong archway. It's got to be there. This is not optional. These are not instructions for how to have a happy church. No, this is a way that we are to worship the living God and proclaim Him to the lost world. And this is not our nature. But there's good news, because over in 1 Peter 1, if it's not our nature, we need to be changed, right? And Peter says we have been changed, because if we profess Jesus Christ as Lord, we've been born again. So the old self is dead, 
And the new self is alive. And we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's being kept for us in heaven by God. And so we, as we live on earth, assured of this inheritance that's unfading... We need to look a little bit more like what we're going to look like for all of eternity. Harmoniously worshiping Christ together in one united body, the bride of Christ. So it is possible. If we've been born again, we can live these five out. It is so, so possible. You can see examples of people living it out in the book of Acts over and over again. They had all things in common and they shared and no one went without anything. And that's material and that's spiritual and that's emotional. They ministered to one another in all those ways. So may this be true of who we are. May this be true of who we are. Now, I'm not done, but this is a section of the sermon that I've finished. And I want us to bow right quick and I want to pray that God would lead us to this. And then we're going to keep going. Okay, so Father... Father, we've heard these five traits that must be readily evident in the lives of this church. Would you make us such? We need your help, Father. We will not, we cannot do this on ourselves, on our own. We must have you to guide us and lead us with your word and your Holy Spirit to become this. Would you do it, Lord, for your glory and for our benefit? In Jesus' name, amen. Point number two. And will you pray like that this week, by the way? Don't let the pastor be the guy that prays that prayer. You pray that. Today, as we lunch together, as we Lord's Supper together, pray this all week long before we come together again. Second, Peter tells us what a church must not look like. Must not look like. Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Do not do this. But on the contrary, bless. For this you were called to, that you might obtain a blessing. Peter commands us here against divisive behavior. He's told us how we need to be, but now how we must not act. And we must not be divisive. There are times when evil and reviling will be directed towards you unjustly. It's coming. Guaranteed, it's coming. It's going to happen out in town, at work, at school, grocery store. It's going to happen. And tragically, it's going to happen within the confines of the church. Peter's writing to the church, to exiles, to Christians, and how they to relate to one another. And tragically, within the confines of the church, evil is going to be delivered towards you. You're going to be reviled. And we do Matthew 18, right? We go to them if they've sinned against you. And if they agree with you, you've gained them. But you're going to have to do that at times. And there's nothing worse 
There is nothing worse than being reviled within the confines of the church. Personally, it hurts us as a congregation, as individuals, but it is an absolute affront to God. Because He died for His church. How dare His church revile one another when He didn't revile her. So there's going to be times that we're going to be reviled. Evil's going to be brought to us. And, and Peter says, do not repay evil for evil. Do not revile when you're reviled. Paul says the same thing. He says this. He says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. And entreat means, please don't do that. That's what entreat means. Change. Don't slander me. Doesn't mean slander him back. Ah, no, I entreat you, stop slandering me. That's what Christians do. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4. Peter says it here. Instead of these things, we bless. We bless. We don't revile. We don't do evil back. We don't slander. We don't persecute. We bless. We're a people who bless. Is that us? that you? Is that me? We have to ask this question. We have to come, every time we gather together, we have to come ready to be blessers instead of cursers. And so here we are with this call. We are to bless. And there are two things, I think, involved in bless. Two big, giant things. First of all, the way we bless one another, even when we're reviled or evil has been done, against us, the best way we can bless that other one is to pray and ask God to put His favored hand upon them. Maybe He needs to put His heavy hand upon them to draw them to repentance. That's a blessing. We're not praying curses on them. We're praying blessing. God, convict them of this so that they'll repent and be right with you and right with me and we fulfill the greatest commandments together. But we also say, Father, would you you deliver them from that and would you... Make them to prosper in the gospel. That's the ultimate blessing. And it is very hard to revile somebody that's reviled you when you're praying for them. You can't do both. You cannot pray, God, protect them, deliver them, convict them, while you're saying slanderous things and reviling things back at them. You can't do both of those things. It's like breathing underwater. You can't do it. And that's a good thing. So pray earnestly for those that revile you. That's how you bless them, number one. The blessing, number two, is when we speak to one another about one that's reviled or done evil towards, we speak well of them. We don't speak well of their sin. We don't promote their sin as good and, man, they're getting it done. No, but we speak well of the person that's made in the image of God. We speak well of them. And we say, vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. I won't. He will repay. I'm going to speak well of them. I'm going to speak well of God to them. And I'm going to speak to God on behalf of them. Again, the context of this passage is within the confines of the church. How we, I'm talking about how we are to act towards one another. We're not to revile and do evil towards one another. But should we, the recipient must bless us. 
What a beautiful picture that must be when that happens. And know all along, here's good news, know all along that there's a day coming where the church will no longer revile one another. There's a day coming when the church will not practice evil towards one another, will not slander one another. And that day is when the church is gathered with Christ in heaven, on the new heavens and the new earth, for all of eternity. And together we will be singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And there's no provision for cursing one another. Be harmony. And the call is, church, that we're to look like that as much as we possibly can right now on earth. We're in a great rehearsal for what we're going to do for all of eternity. Let's start acting like we're going to act for all of eternity. Now, why does Peter command us in this direction? I mean, bless when you've been reviled. Mm. Can you... Can you bring yourself to this? Can, can, I'm going to ask you, get ready, because this is coming to you in a church near you soon. Get ready for this, so that when it happens, your trigger is blessing and not cursing. This is totally against our nature, as I said just a moment ago. And I am going to tell you, you need pastors that live this passage out. We as pastors, the elders of this church, we, we've got to live this out. First Peter 5, I think in verse 3, we preached it three weeks, four weeks ago. Peter calls the elders to be an example before the flock. We have to exemplify when we're reviled, we bless. When we're slandered, we speak well. When people are clamoring, we might need to remain silent. And by doing so, we ask you to imitate us, so long as we're imitating Christ. And you have got to do that as well. We're all accountable to this passage. So Peter commands us in this direction, and the ground of his point is, is this. Look in verse, uh, verse 9, second part. For to this you were called. Now, Peter has used this phrase earlier in this letter. Look over in chapter 2, verse 20. Peter 2, 20. He uses this, for to this you were called again. I want you to read this with me. Starting in verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, here's our phrase, verse 21. For to this you have been called. There's purpose here. You have been called to this because, and it's grounded in, Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Vengeance is yours, Lord. You will repay. I trust you. And our Christ was reviled like you and I have never been reviled. Oh, Evil was practiced towards Jesus like you've never experienced. Ever. 
And never will you experience anything remotely close to what Jesus endured. And yet Isaiah 53 says, like a lamb before his shears, he remained silent. That's who we need to be. Pastor and congregations. We must be like our Christ. Our God is asking us to be like him. So that we will display him to the world, to one another, and to the lost. And the world's watching. The world's watching how the church treats one another. So we have been called to this because our Christ was called to this. Our Christ did it rightly. We must do it rightly in Him because we've been born again and we have the possibility now of doing this. You know, Jesus was reviled. You know, this is within the context of the church and church doing evil and reviling and all this. Jesus experienced this. John 1, 10 and 11. He was in the world and the world was made through Him, but the world didn't know Him. And then it says, and He came to His own people and His own people did not receive Him. So Jesus knows what it's like to be reviled and have evil done towards Him by His own people. You are my own people. I am your own people. We are our own together. So Jesus has been down this trail. And He never reviled. He remained silent before His shears. And you know what He did when He spoke finally? Oh, what are we called to do? We're not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Instead, on the contrary, we're to bless. Jesus blesses his revilers and those who practiced evil towards him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He prayed a blessing on those who crucified him. Let's be a people that prays like that for one another when we wrong one another. Let's be a people united in this Christ who has demonstrated for us what path to walk down and how to walk down it boldly, faithfully, and joyfully. Hebrews tells us the joy that was set before him was the cross because he knew what it would bring about. When we endure persecutions, even from within ourselves, in a godly way, it will bring about likely repentance and reconciliation. And it will be good, yes, for all the parties, but it will be good for God. Because he will be demonstrated yet again. So he says, for this you were called. And gives us Jesus as an example. And Then he says, for this you were called. That you may obtain a blessing. And I don't have time to unpack all of that. But I want to be careful here. I want you to know that the blessing that you may obtain. Is nothing short of eternal life. That's the blessing that Peter's talking about here. So it's a big deal. When you act like he's instructing us to act and you don't do what he tells us not to do and you bless instead of curse, you are going to obtain 
eternal life. Now, this is not a work that if I bless, I'm going to get blessed by God. So I'm going to bless because I want to get that. That's not what's going on here. We do not believe in works-based salvation. What's going on here is you will bless those who persecute you and revile you because you have been blessed. And it's going to be an outworking of this being born again. It's going to be an evidence of your faith in Christ. And so it's going to be who you are. When you're squeezed, blessing's going to come out because you've been blessed. And it isn't going to get you blessed. It's going to be because you've been blessed. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? That is, that is the heart of the gospel. It's not work that we do to earn the blessing of eternal life. It's work that we do because we've been given the blessing of eternal life. We bless because we've been blessed. Do you understand that your sin, listen to me, your sin, whatever it was that you've committed even this very day, was evil practiced toward God. Because God said, don't do whatever you did, okay? He made the rules. And when you practice evil, you're practicing evil towards God. When you revile even one another, you're really reviling God. Because God said, you're sinning against God. Because God said, do not revile. And yet God blessed you. When you defied His commands, He still, He blessed you by sending His Son to die in your place as a substitute. You and I should be the ones saying on a cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words should have been coming out of our mouth. But they came out of our Christ's mouth. And so we get to say, as we shared in Sunday school, we get to say, My God, my God, how much have you blessed me? And so because we've reviled God and He blessed us, when someone reviles us, we bless them. That's Christianity. And that must be the marker that identifies us as a church. So I want to finish that piece with a prayer again. Would you bow with me? Father, I I ask on behalf of my brothers and sisters here that you would remove from us all temptations to practice evil towards one another, to revile one another, to persecute one another, to slander one another. I pray, Father, that you would remove this from us and that we would be a people that, oh, on the contrary, we bless abundantly because that's who you are and that's what you did towards us. And we want to worship you by imitating you to one another. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last, here's the warning. We'll go quickly here. Verse 10, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Warning. Do you hear the warning here? This God, He sets His face against those who do evil. May God not set His face against you and me and our church. 
So I just want to, here's some observations. I want you to note the aggressive, ambitious action that God calls us to take through Peter's writings here. He tells us to keep our tongue from evil. He tells us to keep our lips from speaking deceit. He says, turn away from evil, do good, seek peace, pursue it. These are aggressive words. We cannot sit back and just expect to be peaceful people. No, we have to get after it. We have to roll our sleeves up and say, I am going to be a promoter of peace. I'm going to squelch out evil and deceit. And I'm going to do good. And good is defined as what's in this. Unity of mind. We are to be active and aggressive in this pursuit because of God and who He is. And the warning is, His eyes are on the righteous. God's eyes represent His omniscience. He knows Everything in his eyes are on the righteous. His ears are open to the prayer. Sounds like the husband last week, right? Live with your wife in an understanding way. Showing honor to her as the weaker vessel. Acknowledging her as a fellow heir to the grace of life. So that your prayers may not be hindered. The ears of the Lord here. The ears of the Lord are open to the prayers of the righteous. You want open ears on God towards your prayers. And then lastly, his face, his eyes are on the righteous, his ears are open to their prayer, but his face is against those who do evil. And God's face throughout Scripture is representative of his judgment. And when he turns his face away from you, there's judgment. Ah, Out of my sight. Out of earshot. No. That's God's stance towards evil and unrighteousness. In fact, God did that for a moment on a cross with His Son, Christ, because Jesus did say, why have you forsaken me? He turned His face away from Him because He was judging sin once and for all on that cross. And if you believe in the Christ who hung on that cross, God's face is forever turned towards you. His eyes are always on you and His ears are always open to your prayers. That is the truth. But If you don't believe that, His face is turned against you, and you will one day say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there's a warning here as well. There's a warning that we are to be serious about this call that God's called us to, to be united as a congregation. I love 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout all the earth, Seeking to give strong support to those who are blameless towards Him. He's got searching eyes. He's searching us as a congregation. He's searching me as an individual man. He's saying, I want to strongly support Him with my right hand. But I need to see righteousness. And I only see righteousness if I see belief in my Son, Jesus Christ. So here's how I'll conclude. John 17.10 is... Very, 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 very precious to the church. I I really hope that you embrace what I'm going to share with you here. Because Jesus in John 17, he's just had the upper room experience where he's done his last supper. What we're going to do here in a moment with his disciples. He's taken them out. He's walked across the Kidron Valley. And he's speaking a prayer to God and his disciples get to hear this. And here's what he prays. 
And he prays for you and me, by the way, because he says, Father, I do not pray for these only, these disciples. I do not pray for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Peter was one of those. In Peter's words, what we're preaching here this morning. And so Jesus prayed that we would believe in him through the words of Peter. And this is what Peter told us today. So he prays that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be perfectly one. And then he says this, so that, perk up, man, here comes a purpose for this prayer. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. So Jesus prays for unity. That we would be one just as the Father is in Him and He is in the Father. That we may be perfectly one in them. So that the world will know that you are God. And that you love them. And really it's implied that the world would come and change and be born again and join amongst us. So I'm going to tell you church, when, when we don't strive hard for unity and sympathy and brotherly love, and tenderheartedness, and humility, when that's not what we're doing and what we're about, we are working against the prayer of Jesus. Do you see this? I do not pray for these only, but also those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one. So let's live our lives together as a people that is trying to be the fulfillers of Jesus' prayer for unity. That takes effort. And I want to tell you, the effort is worth it. The effort is worth it to God and to one another. Let's pray. Oh, Father, where would we be without your word? Where would we be without words like this? We would run amok. We would run astray. We would, we would go against your desire and your plans for the church, but we've been given this, this wake-up call. We've been reoriented to why it is that we even gather together here on the occasions that we meet. And it's ultimately to fulfill Jesus' prayer that the world may know you and your Son. So, Father, I pray earnestly on behalf of everyone in this room. I'm, I'm praying for them, I, I ask. Our, our, our request of you, Lord, is that you would unite us. You'd cause us to act like those that are born again, dead to the old ways and alive to the new that's found in your word and in your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that I ask this. Amen.